Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest is Mr. Yusi Lantama. He's uh, ESA's head of space weather, and ESA is the European Space Agency. We'll be talking about uh, the new mission, the Lagrange or Lagrange mission, that's going to monitor uh, solar activity. Because uh, as I'm sure a lot of people know, solar activity can dramatically affect what goes on on Earth, you know, with satellites and communication equipment and everything. So, Yusi, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much, yeah. Richard. Yeah. So tell me about uh, this mission. What's, what does it entail? And, you know, we're, we're monitoring the sun, but from where, you know, what's the mission going to look like? Yeah. Well, Lagrange mission is actually, it's a mission very much encouraged by the success of the uh, NASA stereo missions, actually, because uh, stereo mission uh, contained two spacecraft we were, which were flying around the sun from the Earth perspective. And they were looking at the solar activity from different uh, angles and different locations. And um, that encouraged us to actually look at the uh, possibility to establish something which we could consider as a permanent operational stereo mission that we would have one spacecraft in a specific location, uh, which we call the fifth Lagrange point, uh, where we can actually see the solar activity from a different perspective than uh, what it looks like when we look towards the sun from the Earth. Well, what, um, right, so what is the Lagrange point, um, and what will we? What perspective is it that we're not seeing right now? Well, the Lagrange points in general are the um, points uh, where the um, gravitational pull of the sun and the Earth, uh, also considering the orbital mechanics, uh, they balance each other out. So basically the Lagrange points are the points where the spacecraft is in a stable position, uh, not pulled towards the sun or not pulled uh, away from the sun. And the uh, fifth Lagrange point is, uh, is actually, it's not exactly a point, it's kind of a plateau. It's, a, it's an area which is on Earth orbit, uh, 150 million kilometers behind the Earth. And if we park a spacecraft there, it will stay there essentially forever. Uh, and uh, we don't have to keep its position there. It will be trailing the Earth from this 150 million kilometer distance uh, until eternity, unless we, uh, we move it away from there at the end of the mission. And the idea of this point is that um, we are then looking the space between the sun and the Earth um, from the side. And that means that when something nasty happens in the sun, which is uh, uh, potentially a risk to the infrastructure on the Earth, particularly when there are events called uh, coronal mass ejections, basically uh, they are kind of uh, explosions so in, in the magnetic field uh, within the atmosphere uh, of the sun. And then uh, as a result of these explosions or eruptions, um, billions of tons of the uh, plasma from the sun itself. So the solar matter is ejected into space at speeds reaching up to 3,000 kilometers per second. And when these plasma clouds hit the Earth, um, they will not 
threatened the life on Earth. On Earth, we are perfectly safe, but our infrastructure does not like uh, these um, impacts. Uh, so our satellite systems are at risk, or even the infrastructure on the Earth, particularly the power grids, are at risk. And if we can see these plasma clouds from the side uh, when they are propagating towards the Earth, we can estimate their speed and the potential hazard from these clouds uh, more precisely. And we can also uh, see the direction because these cl clouds, if they go a little bit too high, a little bit too low, so that they don't impact the Earth directly, then the risk on the infrastructure is much smaller. And we want to inform the people who are operating the infrastructure about the risk before the impact. Well, there are two questions. One, how do you avoid the satellite not getting fried by the incoming, you know, coronal mass ejections? And um, is there anything you can do if a big one is coming? Can we, I don't know, shield the equipment somehow or turn it off or have it run in a band of frequency that will be less affected by the, the plasma that's coming? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a good question. Actually, for the satellites, the safest way uh, to handle these situations is or would be actually to turn the satellites off because the uh, electronics on board the satellites are uh, much less sensitive to these impacts uh, uh, when they are not operating. So that would be one way to handle the situation. And if, if really a big one is coming, uh, then a potential measure that some of the satellite operators would take would probably be to turn at least some of the satellites off uh, so that uh, if the worst happens uh, and we lose some satellites as a result of this impact, then we would have spare satellites in the orbit that would then allow us to uh, resume uh, nominal operations as quickly as possible. Um, on the Earth, with the power grids, the situation is slightly different because um, the option to turn the power off, even though that might help to protect the power grids and particularly the transformers in the power grids that might be impacted, um, that would create a huge uh, risk by itself because a lot of systems would, of course, fail in that situation. So the best thing that the power grid operators can do is, uh, is what they call balancing the grid. So basically, they would like to reduce the load on the power grid uh, they would like to make sure that all parts uh, of the grid are in operation. There are no parts which are under maintenance. Um, they would maybe even ask some uh, big power consumers to reduce the consumption for a while so that uh, we can handle this humongous uh, storm that would uh, start as a result of the impact with plasma clouds. But in order to do uh, or to take all these measures, um, people need time. And this is what we try to achieve with this uh, Lagrange mission, that we would actually have more lead time when we give our warnings about what is about to happen. Well, how long does it take um, for a CME to travel from the sun to Earth? Well, that's a, that's a very simple calculation. Uh, the distance is 150 million kilometers. And if the CME is traveling at uh, 3,000 kilometers per second, uh, it takes about 15 to 17 hours to reach the Earth from the sun. And if uh, we have a satellite at the Lagrange point, how far out will it see? Will it see the CMEs as they're occurring right on the surface of the sun? Or, and will we have the full 15 to 17 hours? Or will it see stuff only when it's close and it's on its way? 
Well, the, the situation is that actually we can see the CMEs even from the Earth. Uh, so uh, that will not change. So we can see uh, this onset, this uh, ejection or the eruption in the sun that is creating the CME in both cases. But uh, if we have both uh, observations of the CME from the Earth, and then we have them also from the L5 point, so we have kind of a stereoscopic view on the CME, we can estimate much more precisely how quickly it's coming, so we can uh, assess the uh, potential uh, danger of this uh, CME. Uh, and then we hope that with the L5 uh, mission, we will actually also be able to uh, predict better when a potential CME uh, uh, eruption would actually happen, or if we cannot tell the exact time when it will happen, at least we can give an early warning that people can start to make preparations even before the CME starts. So what happens um, when a CME hits the outer atmosphere and the inner atmosphere, and does it, does it actually touch the Earth's surface? You know, what happens to the, the plasma as it you know, interacts with the atmosphere and the Earth? It does not uh, really touch the um, Earth. I mean, Earth is really well protected against uh, solar activity. So we have, first of all, we have the magnetic field, the magnetosphere of the Earth, uh, which is uh, deflecting a large part of the plasma, which is coming from the sun. Uh, and then whatever gets through is basically absorbed by the um, atmosphere, at least um, to large extent. So at the Earth's surface, it's very rare that we actually see any particles coming from the sun. But what will happen is that um, depending on many things uh, in the physics uh, and in the orientation of the magnetic field outside the uh, Earth's uh, magnetosphere and the Earth's magnetic field and so on, some of this plasma can actually enter into the magnetic uh, into the magnetosphere of the Earth, so they can it can basically get inside the magnetic field of the Earth, and then it, it disturbs our um, magnetosphere. So basically, the whole magnetic field of the Earth is disturbed. This is what we call a geomagnetic storm, and that creates a kind of a transformer uh, type of situation where um, there is one part of the transformer in space. Uh, within the magnetosphere. Another part is, for example, the power grids and the soil under the power grid. So we have two two coils of the transformer, one in space, one on Earth, and that creates um, DC currents in the power grid, which is something that the power grids are not really designed for. And uh, that actually can cause the damage in the transformers in the power grid. Uh, the satellites in space uh, what they don't like is actually uh, these charged particles, the protons and electrons uh, that are triggered by the arrival of the CME, uh, and then uh, the uh, electronics on board the satellites um, can be uh, disturbed or even permanently damaged by this, uh, by these events. And then finally, of course, uh, when we have also um, astronauts in space, um, these uh, same particles that are disturbing the satellites they are also uh, creating a radiation hazard for the astronauts. So astronauts also, they would like to know in advance when these events are taking place, and then they will seek shelter in the better protected parts of the space station, for example. It's okay, yeah, how often? Do they happen like every few years or monthly or constantly or how long? Um, the CMEs, I mean, normal sort of, let's say, small and medium-sized CMEs, um, they happen 
often during a, uh, a uh, active solar period. So when we have high solar activity, uh, we have CMEs uh, weekly. Uh, in some cases, uh, we have them daily. Uh, but these really big ones, the ones that can really disturb and destroy uh, parts of the infrastructure, uh, they fortunately don't happen too often. Um, the, uh, the really big one, the, the biggest one that we know of uh, up to today, uh, happened actually more than 150 years ago uh, in 1859. Uh, that was called the Carrington, Carrington event, uh, based on uh, by, by the name of the guy who actually detected uh, this event. And uh, if that would happen today, uh, we would definitely have a big problem with our infrastructure. Um, small events, but still big ones, uh, have happened uh, sort of once every decade. Uh, and now at the moment, um, we estimate that these really big ones, they might happen once every um, 100 to 200 years. And uh, now the uh, previous big one was uh, 150 years ago. So does it mean that the next one is uh, inevitable? Um, that I don't know, but uh, it will happen eventually. What does it mean? You know, I've read that, um, oh, we're in a period of low solar activity or we're in a period of high solar activity. I mean, the, the, besides the obvious, you know, okay, high solar activity, more CMEs. What's the consequence for Earth if we're in a period of low or high solar activity? Is there anything else that is important to know about it? Well, uh, what it really means is that uh, when we have high solar activity, um, we have more these uh, small and uh, medium-sized uh, uh, CMEs. For example, we have more often these eruptions in the sun that can also uh, produce other things like uh, solar particle events. So basically, we can have... Uh, very energetic particles uh, accelerated by the processes in the sun. And again, these are events that uh, our satellites don't like at all, and also uh, they would be dangerous for manned spaceflight. Um, but these really big events, uh, these uh, uh, devastating events, they don't actually really care about the solar cycle. So uh, we have uh, historical evidence that the uh, uh, that the big events have happened at the uh, solar maximum. They have happened close to solar minimum. They can happen actually at any time during the solar cycle. So in that sense, if we really worry about the biggest events, the solar cycle is not that significant. We have to be always aware and we have to be uh, monitoring uh, what's happening in the sun. I don't know if this is a silly idea, but is there any way we could harness the material that gets ejected from the sun, at least a little bit of it, you know, Throw the device with tremendous capacitance. So when this, these charged particles come in, we somehow harness some of the energy, or is that just silly? Yeah, um, that's an interesting thought. I mean, uh, I think um, some brainstorming occasionally takes place about what we could do with this all all this energy that is released by the sun. Um, I have never heard of anything which would be really practical, something that we could really build. I think the best way to uh, use the energy from the sun still today are the solar panels. These plasma clouds, uh, they are fast, they contain a lot of energy. At the same time, we have to keep in mind that actually the plasma in space is extremely sparse. So, uh, so still uh, building some kind of a huge windmill or something that would uh, utilize this plasma 
um, the scales would be enormous. So uh, it would be really difficult, uh, technical challenge to build anything useful. Okay. Yeah. What What do we think is happening inside the sun to cause a CME? What's the mechanism ah, okay. of what yes. makes it? Reasonably well, what happens, or at least we have a we have a good. Uh, uh, theory about what happens. What actually happens in the sun is that the sun is just like the earth. Sun has a magnetic field around it. Um, sun, sun is essentially, it's, it's, it's kind of a liquid. It's a ball, it's a huge ball of plasma with a uh, nuclear reactor in the center. Uh, this uh, flow of plasma uh, from the really hot core of the sun towards the surface, um, it uh, creates motion, convection, of the matter, it's charged matter, it's moving, it creates a magnetic field, but the magnetic field of the sun is much more complex uh, than the magnetic field of the earth. So uh, instead of just one north pole and one south pole, um, the solar magnetic field has multiple poles. And then it has small local anomalies where actually there can be a small region and the surface of the sun where there are a lot of north poles and south poles kind of um, mingled against uh, or in between each other. And then um, there are a lot of magnetic field lines between these uh, poles. And then what people tend to say is that what happens is that when this um, mix of north poles and south poles and the magnetic field lines, uh, it keeps changing and these fields get tangled, entangled more and more. It's like you take a rubber band and you twist it between your fingers and it gets more and more entangled. Eventually, the rubber band will break and it will hurt your fingers when it does that. Uh, when the magnetic field of the sun uh, locally gets too entangled, it will also break. And then it will release the energy that was stored in the magnetic field. And that creates these eruptions that actually have so much energy that the plasma from the sun itself can actually be ejected into space in such a speed that it escapes the gravity, uh, gravitational pull of the sun itself. Has anyone thought to try to do something on a very small scale here on Earth, you know, create a bunch of magnetic fields and then twist them and, you know, tie them up and then release them to create energy um, or release energy? Um, yeah, I think actually this process... Uh, it's not a very good process of producing energy because you have to have, uh, have first a lot of energy and then you can release some of that uh, by this uh, entanglement and the breaking of the magnetic field lines. So it's not a good way to produce energy, but it would be an interesting way to actually simulate and try to understand better what happens in the sun. Um, but it's very difficult to do. Um, we are not very good at uh, keeping uh, stable uh, well, keeping hot plasma within a stable magnetic field on Earth. I mean, as, as we know from the attempts to build uh, fusion reactors. But what we are doing instead is actually we are sending uh, satellites to um, study the sun and try to understand these processes uh, more precisely. And the U.S. just recently uh, launched the uh, Parker Solar Probe, which will dive very close to the sun so that we can actually see these processes and understand them better. And uh, ESA will actually launch uh, in a couple of years the um, uh, solar orbiter mission, which will complement the observations of the Parker Solar Probe. And actually, then we hope that we can actually do scientific research that helps us to understand the pro these processes better. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the Parker Solar Probe. What, 
what can you say about it? When's it launching and when will it get uh, close to the sun? I mean, the Pakistan was actually launched. Uh, so it's on its way towards the sun right now. Uh, I don't know by heart uh, when it will start to provide measurement data, but it takes a while to get into the right orbit because uh, it really it needs a specific orbit where it's actually uh, kind of diving towards the sun, making a very fast pass around the sun, and then it comes out again uh, more or less to the um, distance of Venus uh, from the sun so that uh, it can actually cool down a bit uh, transmit the data to the Earth and then repeat this uh, this cycle several times. But it will get so close that it will get observations of these phenomena that are happening in the sun. And I hope that uh, we will be lucky and we will actually see some of these eruptions in the sun while the uh, Parker Solar Probe is, is working. Is it going to be inside the uh, the corona of it, or what? How close will it well, get? Well, no, I mean. Yeah, the, the corona is a bit hard. Uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's very hot. So actually, I don't think that you can get inside the corona, but you can get, get close to it so that you have a better view and also you can make some in situ measurements about the uh, um, environment there. Have we launched any, uh, you know, like kamikaze probes into the sun? Is that even possible? Uh, it's, 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 it's a bit surprising to, uh, to, uh, to say this, but uh, actually hitting the sun is not trivial. Uh, it's, uh, it takes a lot of fuel to actually break down from the speed of the Earth and then dive into the sun. So we have never done it. And I don't think that uh, most people would consider that this would be very useful. Actually, this kind of a mission like the Parker Solar Probe that is uh, orbiting around the sun but getting close to it, uh, this is more useful because you have more time to make measurements and, uh, and you need also you need to be a little bit lucky to get close enough to one of these events uh, in the sun so that you get uh, really the information about what's happening during these solar eruptions. You said that we may be able to predict and model the CMEs. Um, can we do that at all now? And when we do predict it, how far in the future do you think we'll be able to predict or is it like is it like weather on Earth? You could probably do maybe a day, and that's about it. Well, actually, to be honest, uh, if we could do a reliable forecast of the solar activity for a day, we would be quite happy. Uh, at the moment, um, what we can really do well is to monitor what's happening and then uh, follow what's happening when, uh, when there is an eruption. Uh, forecasting a solar eruption is, uh, I tend to compare it to uh, forecasting a tornado. Uh, we can tell when there are suitable conditions in the sun that there might be an eruption, but telling exactly when it's going to happen uh, and uh, how big it's going to be and where it's going to impact, uh, this is very challenging. Uh, we really need uh, these uh, Parker Solar Probe and uh, solar orbiter type missions to actually to understand the sun and these processes better. But what we can do uh, when we combine the uh, measurements uh, from the Sun Earth line, which is what the U.S., uh, particularly NOAA, is doing, and then the new observations from, uh, for example, the Lagrange mission, um, we can give an early warning that uh, now you should be aware that there is a potential for uh, solar eruption. So take uh, precautions and stay alert for further information, uh, which we will provide as soon as we detect something. So what's the uh, the roadmap for the Lagrange mission? When will it launch and when will it be in position to start gathering data? We, yeah, uh, 
We are at the moment. We are still uh, designing the mission, so we're designing the spacecraft, and we have uh, prototyping activities for the instruments that we want to have on board. We hope that uh, uh, in uh, 2020 uh, we can start to actually build the spacecraft, and we can also start to build uh, the uh, instruments, the flight models of the instruments, which will be uh, space qualified. Um, that would take us to a launch sometime around end of uh, 2023 to early 2025, depending a little bit of uh, uh, the technical challenges in the final uh, steps in the uh, building the actual hardware and testing it and integrating everything together for the launch. Uh, then um, flying uh, to the L5 point. Uh, L5 point uh, takes uh, 14 months. So if we can launch, let's say, uh, mid-2024, uh, that means that we would be then in L5 uh, in the uh, second half of uh, 2025, and then we would start to uh, do the observations of the solar activity. If you had a, a ruler you know, between the sun and the earth, where would the L5 point sit? You know, how close to the sun and how close to the earth? Well, it's actually, it's, uh, the L5 point creates a perfect triangle. So uh, if um, the distance from the uh, sun to the earth is uh, 150 million kilometers, then if you go uh, backwards on the earth orbit, so uh, you will basically go to the uh, um, anti-flight direction of the earth on the earth orbit, 150 million kilometers, uh, then that's where the L5 point is. And then it's on Earth orbit, so the distance from the L5 point to the Sun is again 150 million kilometers. So it's a perfect triangle with uh, where each side is 150 million kilometers. So does it literally orbit around the Sun, trailing the Earth like a like you're yeah. like a tin can trailing a car? It's 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 there. It's it's following the Earth perfectly. So uh, so it's always uh, in the same spot in respect to the Earth. And this is this is really the advantage of this point. So when we park a spacecraft there. Uh, and we point the instruments uh, from the spacecraft uh, towards the uh, sun and also towards this uh, space between the sun and the earth. It will always remain in this position uh, so we can uh, keep uh, monitoring uh, what's happening. The disadvantage of this point is that actually um, 150 million kilometers is quite far away. So it's a, it's a deep space mission. We want to download this data from this mission all the time. So this will be the very first uh, operational deep space mission with continuous data download that uh, mankind has ever built. How long will it take data to come from the satellite to... Uh... Yeah, that's another interesting point. I mean, it will take eight minutes. So at the speed of light, uh, the travel time from the L5 point uh, to Earth is eight minutes. So uh, when something happens in the sun, um, the photons from this event will take eight minutes to reach the L5 point and then uh, the first bit of the image that we are detect we are taking from this event, it will take another eight minutes uh, to come to Earth. So 16 minutes uh, is, is the total time uh, from the something happening in the sun before we have the first information uh, of that uh, uh, on Earth. Since um, the L5 point is a balancing point where an object you said will stay there forever, is there anything there right now? You think that just randomly asteroids or stuff that's you know gone through our solar yeah. system has, has gotten stuck there? 
Well, that's another ex- very interesting question. Actually, um, before the stereo mission, um, there was the thought that uh, there would be a so-called uh, Trojan asteroids that would be there uh, hanging around in our five point. But uh, my understanding is that because it's not really, it's a plateau. It's, it's basically if you have any speed and you do not have brakes, uh, then you're basically drifting uh, through it and then uh, you're slipping away from the other side. So basically asteroids do not break. Uh, so, uh, so there are no, as far as we know, and this is based on also uh, what uh, the uh, steroid mission saw when it was passing by close to the L5 point, uh, that um, there is no dust, there, is no, uh, there are no Trojan asteroids, there are no rocks uh, there. So it's basically a clean, empty plateau where we can park our spacecraft. Do you think uh, Venus or Mercury have similar points that could be used or other planets? I mean, every single, I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the magic of the um, uh, mathematics and the orbital mechanics. Every two-body system uh, has Lagrange points. So basically, there are Lagrange points between the Earth and the Moon. Uh, there are Lagrange points between any uh, planet uh, um, moving around the Sun and the Sun itself. Uh, so these points do exist uh, whenever there are two bodies uh, with a gravitational pull. And you can calculate uh, with relative ease uh, where these points are. Well, the, how could the other ones be useful, like between the Earth and the Moon? Is there anything, if we park a satellite there, would that be useful? You know, or maybe the Earth and Venus or, you know, in, in tow behind some Venus? Proposals. Yeah, I mean, we haven't used those point, points yet, but uh, there have been some proposals. So maybe uh, we could park, uh, uh, maybe in the future someday, uh, we could uh, basically divert uh, an asteroid uh, to one of these points, uh, maybe one of these Lagrange points uh, between the Earth and the Moon or somewhere else where we can go and mine it. I mean, there are some ideas, but we have not utilized uh, many of these points so much. Uh, the Earth Sun Lagrange points, the L1 point, which is a point which is between the Earth and the Sun, uh, relatively close to Earth, uh, only 1.5 million kilometers away. We have several spacecraft there, uh, most of which are actually for the uh, monitoring of the solar activity uh, and the uh, environment uh, in, the, uh, in this L1 point. ESA um, also had recently a LISA Pathfinder mission there because uh, this is a technology demonstration of technology to uh, detect uh, gravity waves uh, um, in space. And then there is uh, the um, second Lagrange point, the L2. It's a similar point behind the Earth on the Sun-Earth line. So there is also this uh, stable point, uh, which is uh, 1.5 million kilometers uh, behind the Earth uh, from the uh, Sun perspective. And for example, at the moment, ESA has there a uh, mission called, uh, called Gaia, which is mapping uh, the stars in our uh, uh, Milky Way, uh, because it's a nice point where you can build a spacecraft which is shielded from the uh, solar light. And, uh, and then you can have very sensitive camera, which is uh, measuring the locations of each one of the stars uh, in our galaxy. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know all this. Um, yeah. How big I are mean, the, yeah, the, the, the garage point areas? Are they really small or only, you know, it'd be real specific to sit in them or, or are they, you know, several miles wide or high or, you know, in well, volume? The, 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 
these points are very different uh, in nature. So basically, uh, the um, this L5 point and then a, a corresponding point called L4, which is 150 million kilometers ahead of the Earth on the Earth's orbit, um, they are kind of plateaus. So they are they're, they are big areas uh, where where it can stay. Um, the L1 point and the L2 point, they are kind of quasi-stable points. So it's it's a little bit like, you know, it's very easy to understand. On one side, you have the gravitational pull of the sun. On the other side of this point, you have the gravitational pull of the earth. So it's it's like standing on one leg on a mountaintop. So it's a, it's a point where if you slip, you will either fall towards the sun or you will fall towards the earth. And that's why uh, the spacecraft are not in these points themselves they are actually orbiting around these points, which is a more stable way to stay in the vicinity of these points. And these orbits around the points of these points are actually very big. Uh, for example, uh, in the L2 point, uh, the um, radius of the orbit of the uh, Gaia mission is about 1 million kilometers. So it's not exactly in this point. It's about uh, it's uh, on an orbit which is always 1 million kilometers away from this point, but it's still a stable uh, way to be there uh, without uh, spending uh, too much fuel on uh, keeping the position of the spacecraft there. Anyways, so are these points acting as, can you picture it as like a gravity well or almost like a pseudo body in space that you can orbit around? Well, it's 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 it's, it's basically a, a point of uh, it, uh, li- equilibrium. So basically you are, you if you take, you have to take the orbital motion into account, but uh, but then uh, the uh, uh, the gravitational pull of the two main bodies around these points is balancing out. So uh, so you can kind of stay there, but as as I said, the L1 and L2 point are quasi stable in the sense that uh, it's it's really a very narrow region where the pull is equally uh, balancing out, and if you go a little bit away from that, you start to fall. So that's why. Satellites are orbiting around these points, uh, which is a, a sort of a trick to keep uh, the, uh, the uh, satellite stable there. But the L5 and L4 are more like plateaus, so it's it's a bigger area. Uh, it's actually, I think it's it's uh, I don't know the exact size even, but it's uh, thousands of kilometers where you can stay somewhere in the vicinity, and doesn't really matter where you are, and then uh, you can stay there. Huh. Space is amazingly weird and fascinating. All the things that happen. It's uh, space is uh, actually. I mean, it's even more amazing that it's not that long ago that uh, we didn't know how to put spacecraft into these points because uh, uh, the uh, these calculations or orbital mechanics. It's it's uh, it requires a lot of number crunching power. So the utilization of the L1 point and the L2 point only started um, um, a couple of uh, decades ago. So before that, we didn't really know how to put spacecraft there. But now uh, our understanding of the orbital mechanics and especially our uh, power to do the number crunching to find the orbits of how to fly to these points has increased so much that uh, now we can actually uh, we can start to utilize them. Well, very cool. Are there any resources for people to find out more about you know the mission to L5 and maybe to get a visual map of what, you know, L1 through L5 look like, you know, a picture that shows well, the sun and the earth and, and these points. Yeah, I mean, if you want to understand more about the Lagrange points, uh, then uh, I think there is actually, there is an excellent uh, Wikipedia page, a page about these points. So I would just advise to go there. Um, then 
learning more about the Lagrange mission, um, we have uh, very nice websites uh, uh, within the ESA website. And uh, one way to find these uh, articles about the Lagrange mission is actually Google for um, the keywords are where no mission has gone before. If you Google that, you will find a direct link into our website, which will tell you everything you want to know about the Lagrange mission. Well, that's great. Well, you see, thank you for coming and explaining all this. And it's been really interesting. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. It's it's my pleasure. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm available if uh, somebody wants to ask uh, more questions. I, I will be very happy to provide more information. Oh, how, how could they uh, contact ESA or you? What's a good resource for them? Well, uh, you can just Google uh, UC uh, Luntama, or you can just uh, go to the ESA website and look for the um, uh, information about the ESA Space Situation Awareness uh, Program, and uh, my uh, contact information is there. That's great, UC. Very good. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.